0: Hello it's Paul from The Past Podcast and a very Merry Christmas Welcome to this Christmas special of The Past Podcast As a special festive treat I've rounded up five of the UK's best chefs to talk you through some favourite Christmas recipes Watch out for five incredible recipes coming your way Our first guest is is the incredible Gareth Ward from the One Michelin star Yinshire Hall in Wales. How's it going? You must be one of the most remote restaurants in Wales, mustn't you? I think we
1: are the most remote restaurant in Wales. (laughs) Yeah, we're right in the shit.
0: we are. (laughs) Tell us a bit about how you came to find that place then, because it's like an old hunting lodge or something, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories about what it actually is. It was built for an old hunting lodge.
1: with Gary at Red Star, and took a few months before this came up, and as soon as I came here, I just fell in love with it. It's incredible. The whole atmosphere,
0: where it's located, the grounds, the surrounding areas, it's just unbelievable. It's just like proper, filled me full of excitement for the future. I knew this was where I could make a mark, you know what I mean? Yeah, and you've not really been there for that long either, have you, really? Four years, just. In that four years, you must have seen it rocket, because you are now the highest rated restaurant in Wales on the Good Food Guide.
1: Yeah, it's been incredible. It's been a brilliant journey. And for us, it's only kind of just started, really. Because for the first three years, it was a hotel, and I was just an employee here, and we pushed it quite far, but there was always a slight restraint on what I could do, because I always saw this place as a restaurant rooms, so I thought there was nothing else it could be, it was too small for me to be a hotel. You know, it doesn't have the facilities, it has nothing, just apart from the beautiful location, and an incredible building so it was coming to the time when I was starting to think like if I can't take this any further I've got to move on because I want to push my career as far as I can go and then like the sad side of it was Mrs. Vink died which was quite sad she was the lady who owned it or part owned it it was her baby she ran the hotel and made it what it was the legacy is huge but on the flip side of that the business side is that it opened up the doors for me Hmm. you know which was an incredible situation you know because obviously it was quite sad that she'd gone it was very sad but then you know, the future was bright for me because I was given the opportunity to take this place on when the financial guy behind it doesn't really have much to do with it other than he backs it and he loves it he loves this place you know he wants to see it be the best but he doesn't have anything to do with the day the day running it so We handed it over to me and my partner Amelia who worked together and this gets to do
0: <laughs> how did that feel then yeah
1: that was that place looks like a machine it looks amazing He says, how are you doing it says, because we've got no stress to have this guy behind us John it's unbelievable you know he doesn't give us any stress he pushes us to take the place further so he's like right what we're going to do next like what we refer next you know which rooms are we going to do he wants to spend the money on it he wants to push it he wants to make it amazing and that is like an unreal situation I feel very lucky every day because he's actually pushing us rather than us having to go to him saying, no, "Oh, we need this and he's like well, you got to justify it, why do you need it, you know, can you find it cheap All the rest of it.
0: It's like none of that. <laughs> it's just, <let's> a
1: <laughs> score. That's amazing. It's a very, very unique situation, and I feel very, very lucky. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. What was your reaction then? It must have only been like a month or so ago now when you saw the Good Food Guide come out and see that you're top of Wales. <laughs> yeah, I think we you jumped something like 25, 26 places.
1: We actually went up 30 places. Wow. Because we were 42, and now we're 12.
0: That's um, crazy. Completely unexpected. You know, we didn't even know the guy was coming out that day.
1: We got an uh, email from local journalists, because what the good food guy must have done is contacted all the local journalists to give them a heads up what's going on. The journalists didn't know the ins and outs of it, they just knew that something was happening. So we got an email from the local journalists, can we have an interview with Gareth, and want we'll to talk about a good food guy coming out, and your success in... Getting into the top 20 or whatever it was, and, that, and we were like, whoa, what's all this about? This is class. We didn't know anything about it, and then the guide came out, day number 12 and the 8 out of 10, which was, I said at the beginning of this year, I'll be happy this year because Good Food is my favourite guide out of all of them. It's the one I first read when I was a kid, and I used it to find my first job as a chef in, it, in the Mises Hack Kitchen. So I said, if we get 8 out of 10 this year and Good Food Guide, I'll be well happy, and it happened so
0: then. That's crazy, isn't it? It's almost like a complete circle coming round on to use it to start as as your job and then to find out that, you know, where you are now is rising so highly. When I first got to hear about you, you did the Obsession events through Nigel Howarth.
2: Yeah.
0: And one of the things that I think you guys have really introduced since you've been there is your style of cooking at Yinshire, and it's that sort of British-style food. Yeah. Is that the sort of style that you like cooking then, is it? Well, food is.
1: Interested in what people are doing. Other people are doing some incredible things, but I'm not interested in it because it's not mine. Mm. I very much cook what I want to cook. You know what I mean? For instance, I've just put a dish on the menu called chicken curry, and it's because I love cooking curries. Like one of my favourite things to do to wind down and chill out is cook curries for the boys in the kitchen. So if I've got a bit of spare time and I'm on top of my prep list, I'll start doing a curry for the boys for dinner. And one day it was sort of daftness. You know, I said, I want to put a curry on the menu. dish but it's my own curry dish I haven't followed any recipe for it I haven't followed any rules I haven't watched what anybody else has done it's just happened and it's like all of our food is like that we just have our own style and that's what I want I don't want to be known for having somebody else's style in the restaurant because we've got to try and make this place a destination restaurant and to do that you to be doing something different you know if they can have somebody else's food or somebody else's style of food the restaurant next door the same as what they can have here they wouldn't travel this far to come here you want to come in to have something different
0: in my life, you Yeah, yeah. In a part of that British food tradition, this is our Christmas special, and you are our first guest on the Christmas special. How is Christmas for you? Do you like getting in the kitchen and cooking proper British food, your Christmas dinner? I love
1: Christmas dinner. It's one of my favourite meals of the year. I don't like cooking it for loads of people, or I like cooking it for my family. We're not open Christmas this year, and I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> because I would never go away for Christmas. And you know, cause I'm in the industry, so I suppose I'm different. I feel really guilty that I'm keeping these guys away from the family and the loved ones. You know what I mean? It's like I want people sat in my kitchen, all my family and the kids and everything, and like cooking an amazing. I'm just eating all day, you know, cooking an incredible turkey with all the women's a lot sitting down, just eating loads of food and then just passing out.
0: Do you still manage to enjoy cooking then? You know, when you're cooking for your family?
1: Absolutely, I'm obsessed doesn't <laughs> no matter what it is I'm cooking, I enjoy it. I'm 100 percent on nothing. Like you, I will not do anything if I don't want to do it. You can ask me Mrs. this or this. Before it, <me> for it. <laughs> if I don't want to do it, I will not do it. I'm like a dog. I'll just sit down.
0: <laughs> you know, a lot of people be familiar with their mum or their dad or whoever's cooking their annual Christmas dinner. What does a Christmas dinner from a Michelin star chef look like?
1: very much like it would <laughs> I'm
0: a firm believer in
1: don't fucking touch it it's not broken you know I just do it my own way so like I've had the best talk about ingredients isn't it that's how our whole restaurant is ran we are an ingredient driven restaurant before we thought about a dish we have an ingredient first so we'll get the most incredible chicken and I'll be like what can we do with this chicken let's do this with it it's not like oh I want to do this and start drawing pictures of the dish on a piece of paper and stuff like that like oh, we'll do that we'll do that <laughs> like that, it's like, right, we've got this most incredible piece of beef what do we do with it? All about ingredients for me. Completely ingredient driven restaurant and then after that it's like flavour. they're the two most important things. You know, so when it comes to Christmas dinner and I buy the most incredible turkey I can find and I'll brine it for like twenty four hours, keep all that moisture in there, you know, season it in the inside and then just slow poach mine in a bag with loads of brown butter, slow poach it in the bath and then just give it a quick roast on the top in a pan but you get the most moist, incredible, flavoured, beautiful turkey. And then it's just, yeah, it's just I go to town with the vegetables. I just love it. I get obsessed with it. I can't help. It <laughs> you know, I love making bread sauce, one of my favourite things to make. So
0: I bang out like an incredible bread sauce. You just get everything. It's amazing. I love it. So obviously now, coming back to the restaurant, when you're starting to achieve these things that you are, and, you know, you're a Michelin-style restaurant now, like we've mentioned, highest in Wales, what would you like to achieve for Yinshire? Mm-hmm. My dream, is to make it a very successful restaurant, to make some
1: money, because it probably never has done in all of his life, being here. That's what I want to do. I want people to come every day, and I want to have a reputation throughout the country, if not Europe, for this place where people come and have something different, you know. On a very personal gain, I want to start. the start
0: Just a small issue on that one. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah,
0: you know. A small mountain to get, climb. you to get two first. So. <laughs> Well, you know, we're chatting ahead of when the stars will be announced. I think they'll be announced in October. Will you be sat around somewhere? Well,
1: I'll be but,
0: there. oh yeah, they're doing it in yeah, the event this year. So, this year. one
1: of the stars being invited. Are
0: you going to be sat in a big hall biting your nails for?
1: With these guys, you never know, dear. No, they very much do what they want to do. You know, you get taught every single day, and that would almost be a two-star restaurant. How you're already one star, we don't take it for notice of any of it because none of these guys are riding the guide. Yeah. You know, there's only a handful of people that can make that decision. Mm-hmm. I think what we're doing here is very special and very different, you know, and I think it's worthy of high accolades, but that's only my personal opinion. And that's only because I've been in the trade 20 years, and Isn't... I've eaten and worked in some absolutely incredible restaurants. In my head, and what I've eaten and what I've cooked in other restaurants, I know where we stand with that.
0: Is there almost like a philosophy like, you're only as good as the last meal that you've cooked?
1: Yeah, well, you're only as good as every day you come to work, you know. if you, you shouldn't have standards, you should only have one standard. You shouldn't have multiple. You've got to come in every day and do the same thing over and over and over and over again. You know, you can't ever drop the ball. It's got to be consistent. I don't believe in, like, oh, that will do. It's, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> it's either yes or no. Simple as that. But I run a very different kind of kitchen here where, like, I don't know if you've heard much about what we do. I've done away with all shouting and screaming and stress of kitchens and... Calling and what he's you and all the rest of it. It just doesn't work. I've got a very, very laid back, relaxed kitchen where we all have a lot of fun. And everybody wants to be here and come to work loving, and it reflects. Like everybody
2: says this, like these guys are love this place, don't they? I'm like, yeah. Everybody is exactly the same.
0: And I suppose that comes back to what you said about, you know, giving everybody time off over your festive period. It's about creating almost that family environment as well.
1: Yeah, too, right? These guys, you know, they're not robots. They're human beings. You've got to give them their time. I want these guys to spend their Christmas with their family. Just as, same as I want to spend Christmas with my family. You know what I mean? Why should they be different to me? It's the way it is, isn't it? It's like you give them six weeks off a year, throughout the year like you trying to give people a quality of life because
0: you work very very hard so lastly then like you say I know you mentioned that obviously you guys are going to be closed over Christmas but what's the best thing if people are tucking into their Christmas day now listening to the podcast and wanting to get involved and come and try what you guys are doing what's the best way to get in touch with you guys at Yinshire
1: best way to get in touch with us is give us a call we love personal interaction between customers and ourselves we're not big into online bookings and stuff like that we love to chat with people get a right feel for them and they get a feel for us. We're a very small business, so that's the best way. Give us a call, have a chat, and
0: we'll get you sorted. Oh, fantastic, mate. Well, what we'll do is we'll put up all the links to your website so everybody can get involved and see what you guys are doing. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to at some point, hopefully in the new year, coming to see you guys as well and see what you're doing.
1: Yeah, please do, man. It'd be
0: awesome to have you. Yeah, definitely. It'd be amazing. And, uh, you know, best of luck for October. Try not to bite every single one of your nails, but whatever you guys do, from what I see and what I read, you guys are doing absolutely amazing work and massive congratulations on The Good Food Guide this year. Thank you very much. And thank you for being the first guest on our Christmas special. Merry Christmas. Cheers, mate. Our second guest is Stuart Ralston from Azel in Edinburgh.
3: The, uh, Tuesday is usually like my day where I don't try and do anything. Uh, sort of spend it with my son and just do whatever. So two them are always kind of
0: free and open Oh that's good It must be a bit of a balancing act wasn't it Because obviously you're busy on the weekend Yeah it's really difficult It's pretty impossible I think for both chefs
3: With children and stuff like that it's, He's either at nursery or off When I'm at the busiest time So it's not ideal And he's still young So it's a bit of a balance You don't get much sleep I can tell you
4: that
0: <laughs> <laughs> You must be used to that though as a chef
3: Yeah well I leave the house at 8.30 in the morning And I get back usually at 12.30 at night he gets up during the night between one and sort of two o'clock, I'm up with him trying to help him. We share that with my wife and I, but she also is up early. Yeah. Then back to work.
0: <laughs> this your first restaurant then?
3: Yeah, it's the first restaurant I've owned there. Yeah.
0: And how long have you had it open then?
3: So we're going on about three and a half years now.
0: Oh, wow, right, OK.
3: So April will be four years.
0: Yeah, and you're just doing a refurb, is that for the first time mm-hmm. as well?
3: When we first opened, obviously we didn't have any money, we didn't have any investors, any bank loans and stuff like that so we just sort of built it up over a little bit of time. Every time the restaurant made profit we just buy something or redo something or upgrade something yeah. so it's a lot different to when it first opened and even now you know it's nowhere near where we want it to be but it's profitable and it's sustainable and we have no debt so for me it makes for a better business than doing it the other way. Before I moved back to the UK we talked to some investors and stuff and it just didn't seem as attractive as doing it this way. So the refurb is kind of, at the minute, it's looking like it's going to be split into two parts. We're going to rebuild the kitchen, knock down some walls, and make the kitchen bigger and build some new bathrooms, which would be good because the pastry split from the, the kitchen in the minute. And then in the summertime, we're going to shut again and do the restaurant and the bar and create a new stairwell into the basement so we can open up the basement for that.
0: Oh, nice. What, so you get a few more people in there as well?
3: Probably not. Downstairs we're thinking of doing a private dining room for one-off dinners for maybe larger groups but it's not really like integral to the business plan. Definitely want to have a bit of a wine room down there because we've got a lot of wine in the basement currently but it shares the space with mini prep kitchen so it's kind of cramped into one and we've got a whole basement that was not touched but we need to connect them through the walls and build new staircases so it's easy to get up and down during service because right now we can't access it so it should extend it quite a bit.
0: So I guess the benefit of doing this now that I can do it over the phone is that I'm obviously increasing my UK geography a lot because obviously starting up it's been focused mainly around Yorkshire and places that I can get to. But I became familiar with you when I was just looking at up-and-coming and well-recommended restaurants yeah. in Edinburgh. Yeah. You know, do you feel like you're sort of gaining a bit of a name for yourself now?
3: Yeah, I think so. It's a funny one because for me... I can say like hand on my heart for sure the restaurant being busy and being a business has always been more important to me than anything else you know I just didn't want to fail at business and have a restaurant that shut before it was really got going so I feel like we've always focused on that and that's been our kind of biggest importance and then maybe in year two we started looking at you know what we were doing more the product and how it was and what could we do to make it better and I think along with that, we've started to gain a bit more of a following. I mean, we've got lots of regular customers who've seen the change over time. I mean, we definitely have a decent following in Scotland, and most decent chefs you know, I kind can of interact with anyway. So I know a lot of people from Scotland. I worked away for a long time, but I've you know, got
0: a lot of good friends here too. What's it like in Edinburgh then as a city for like food culture? Because obviously you've got a couple of the sort of more famous... Yep. Restaurants and you know, in like your kitchen and stuff like that. But sure. I hear like quite a lot of good things about a lot of emerging restaurants up there. Is it quite a good? Yeah, it's
3: changed a lot. Even in the four years that we've been back, it's changed a lot. But before I left, you know, you could see a lot of things change, and there was only ever really your Michelin star restaurants, like you're talking about, and then if maybe a couple of decent eateries. You know, there wasn't as many as there's now. But I think now you see that mid-to-bottom level being filled up with much better restaurants. So there's kind of something for everybody. You know, there's a really great Mexican restaurant, which, you know, up until now, you've only sort of seen bastardised version of Mexican food, and now there's actually decent ones. So I think that kind of, like, talks a lot about where Edinburgh is, and it's obviously still got plenty of Michelin-star restaurants. But, you know, even from a Mexican restaurant to sort of mid-level brasseries, there's great French brasseries... In Edinburgh, I just think Edinburgh's got, like, a big heritage of good eating. It's got a lot of good restaurants a lot of good chefs working in this city. And the city's pretty small, so you get to know about them a lot better. I really like it. I mean, I've lived in New York for a long time, where your choice is everything. And in Edinburgh, you know, there's, there's kind of plenty to choose from, I think.
0: It must be quite difficult, because obviously it's, like, a really big tourist city, yeah. and then therefore that can either do one or two things, can attract, like you say, these high-end ones that are trying to go to these rich tourists, or then just your generic chains. Of course, there are those in every city, but especially for a restaurant like yours, which is like this real sort of neighbourhood, it felt really almost like very local to me. When I came, one of the reasons why I loved it the most, it sort of felt in the best way possible, that I was like stumbling across almost like a hidden secret.
3: It is difficult for restaurants like ours. But it's also, I think, the best place to do it too. You know, There's a lot of opportunity to do what we've done for other people too. And there's, yeah, of course, George Street, St. Andrew's Square, they're always going to be dominated by the billionaire, millionaire chain companies that can afford the rents and and afford the back end to go into those places. But, you know, that was never what I wanted anyway. I've worked in a lot of high-end places. But for me, I wanted something that was kind of low-key, kind of localised, kind of built up over time. I mean, our restaurant... It's just been built up over time. It's not been something that's opened up with lots of flashy PR about me and all this stuff that we've done. And It was pretty low-key and kind of that just suited me mm. and that's what I wanted it to be and it's got a good reputation for food kind of based on that. Just like you say, it's built up as a sort of neighborhood restaurant, not in a desirable area of Edinburgh. It's kind of on the outskirts of the town. But for me, it's got a beautiful view. It fits in with a sustainable business plan it's close to my house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's one of those. It's it walk. And it's the yeah. So I can walk to work in my like fifteen minutes. Yeah. Through the meadows, which I kind of like. You know, I don't want to be right in the middle of town. I've travelled and commuted for five years in New York. You know, getting trains and everything to get to work, and it's just it's not my ideal.
0: One of the things that you know really attracted me again as somebody who's coming from. Like leads to come up, and you're obviously looking for something good to eat. It's like yeah. you're very, very seasonal, it's this ever changing menu. Was yeah. that always the way you wanted to set out?
5: That is the way I wanted
3: it set up originally. When we first opened, the food was like a lot more casual. We didn't work the same hours we work now. It was sort of set up to be this like kind of husband and wife bistro with a bit of an edge, I guess. It was meant to be something like a little bit different. You know, we're still doing like braised pork cheeks and, and kind of simpler dishes because at that time there was only me and another guy in the kitchen. We were still busy. We charged less and stuff like that. So it's just the idea of, like, again, let's change the menu every day. Let's just beat to the suppliers. And it sounded, like, pretty romantic at the time. <laughs> Little did I know, like, how much fucking work goes into changing the menu every day. You know, i would come off the back of being the chef cuisine at Sandy Lane in Barbados, so it wasn't like I'd been running a section for the last few years. Like, I was running a restaurant and events and to purchasing for a large hotel and had a large staff to look after and then it interacted with executive chefs and stuff. So it was a kind of a different thing. And then I was back in this like, little 40-seat bistro, smashing it out on the stoves. So, you know, I tried to set it up quite simply at the beginning just to see if it would work. We had the same concepts, but the style of food was, I think, less challenging. It was definitely much more comforting. And in essence, something that would change all the time, something that didn't have a menu something that relied on good produce and good sourcing and and something that was kind of accessible from a price point was always my main criteria to open a restaurant
0: because you know you walk in and and the menu is like a shared menu and it's written up on the board as like a, a list of ingredients so is that literally just what's come to you that morning yeah it's like
3: the bulk of the main items that you should be seeing in the menu it's the most highlighted things we couldn't write everything up there just for space and it just started to become like too long and hard to read so we kind of tested to the main highlights of things that were coming in 20 so 25 ingredients the things you should see and again over time we've kind of developed a kind of program for how we change things and for how the board gets changed and before it was kind of like everything we do on the first of the month and we changed the whole menu but then as we tried to make the menu better and maybe try and refine it, maybe try and concentrate harder. It became more difficult to do that every first of the month, so then we just started interchanging dishes as we were coming through the back door and as we were kind of practising new ideas and, you know, more organically coming through.
0: Do you have to have, like, a bit of a level of ruthlessness in a way? Because I can imagine, you know, you spend time and you work out a cracking dish, and then if you can't get that through, like, the next day or the next week, it's like, well, that's it. Yeah,
3: definitely, I mean... The dishes, when we practice them, there's definitely more failures than are there successes. There's a lot of things that are kind of classical, the way we cook them, but maybe the flavor combinations are a bit more thought about. So some things read better on paper than they actually taste, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> or look when you go to do them. So things do get thrown out and maybe saved for later, or maybe put the idea on a back burner if it just doesn't look right. And I think this year, especially, we've been way more critical of anything that goes on the menu. And, And trying to get to another level. I mean, it's always a challenge. The kitchen's 12 square meters. You know, it's tiny, and there's four guys in there trying to get 45 plates of everything out every night to you know make it hot and making it good. So we have to think about those things too. So sometimes we can come up with an idea, and it's like, nah, this is like overly technical, or it's going to take too long to plate, or. There's no way he can do all that plus do all the other stuff he has to do. So they're going to get scrapped off.
0: You know how much I like your restaurant. So if I ever say anything, you know, you mustn't think that I'm saying it negatively. But I can imagine that if you were planning out how a restaurant's laid out, you probably wouldn't lay it out like that either. It's almost like in these two little rooms. I
3: made loads of of mistakes even (laughs) in the beginning when I could have not made those mistakes. You know, like in hindsight, I put the bar in the second room and made the front entrance in the other room. So now people have to constantly catch the door and, and look out for people coming through to catch on the hostess stand in hindsight I should have put the bar in the other room <laughs> you know I've never opened my yeah, restaurant exactly, before exactly. and especially on a budget it's like what money do I have and where does it get spent I mean the kitchen was the last thing I got any money so yeah definitely I would not have laid it out and it was all about the cost of changing something that's pre-existing and exactly. also going through health and safety and all the things that you have to go through when you change how a restaurant works already was, you know, too intimidating.
0: But I think then on the flip side, it makes it, you know, memorable. You know, I've been in tons of restaurants and that's what mm-hmm. we do, but I couldn't probably tell you how it was laid out and I couldn't remember things like having the big menu on the blackboard like I still yeah, can. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to you know out that It was a little while ago that I've been in your restaurant. So to sure. be able to recall that out, you know, I think it does show that there is, like, a character to it as well. Yeah,
3: yeah, I think there's, like, there's a definite boldness to the things we do. It's very clear when you walk in, like, there's not a lot of other stuff, there's not a lot of superfluous things that are there for no reason, and I think that's, like, a theory kind of throughout the whole restaurant, like, everything's kind of done for a reason, the way we do it is for a purpose, it's not just, like, added on or or for show, everything's kind of practical, and it kind of works, and it's really... Inefficient manner because the kitchen and the restaurant team, you know, they suffer a lot through inefficiency just with the way the restaurant is laid out, the way the kitchen is, and how the the hot kitchen runs is particularly difficult. Just again, by the nature of what we're trying to do in this space, we're trying to do without having spent, you know, a hundred thousand pounds on the kitchen.
0: Funnily enough, you mentioned to me about that you went to Longclume recently, <laughs> and another chef friend that I was talking to had mentioned that and said about, you know, sometimes the problem when you are so reliant on growing your own and what have you and okay. using that really seasonal menu is that when it comes to this sort of time of the year and obviously this now is you know our christmas special so when it does come sure. to that winter time and things yeah. aren't growing sometimes it can restrict restaurants like long Clube and places that really really rely on that what will you be getting excited about over like the sort of christmas winter periods that will be coming in that will come onto your menu you know because again you are reliant on that ultra seasonal i
3: guess it may be a little bit easier because we're seasonal, but, you know, there's lots of stuff throughout the UK that we can pull from. We're not just taking stuff from, like, Scotland, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's the autumn truffles and stuff like that. are going to be coming in. But, you know, at the minute, we we'll are looking at changing onto the menu. Muscadet pumpkins, cabbages, apples at the minute. There's lots of stuff to be had. I mean, definitely, you're obviously into, like, root vegetables and heartier dishes, maybe... You know, we put a short rib dish on usually December. For us too, we preserve a lot of stuff. We take a lot of stuff in the summer, pickle them, make chutneys out of them, make vinegars, and, and keep a lot of stuff for that time as well. For me, it's still good enough to put on the menu because the technique has been used. Like, we've got loads of damsons. We've made damson umeboshi, like doing it in the style of umeboshi plums. So we can use that throughout the rest of the year. So the things that we do sort of, pre-load and pre-think about and also for us it's not that difficult because we shut most of January Right. we take Christmas and New Year off so there's like, you know, December's a fairly short month in terms of business for us mm-hmm. so it comes around fast but I think there's still tons of stuff to play around with it's just a different time to me it's it's the time for the mashed potatoes and <laughs> root veggies and braises and warmer things, the pasta dishes you know, we've got a nice annulati dish that'll probably go on next week So it's things that over time, I mean, it's not a new thing to me. I've been cooking for 20 years, so I've seen
0: 20 December. you know. Yeah. One of the things that fascinates me, and I'm enjoying talking about it, is that, you know, when I think about it, I think, oh, i finally got some time off. And, you know, I'm not much of a cook, but I really enjoy it. And, in fact, this year I'm doing the Christmas dinner. And that's the thing that I really look forward to, is, like, my time off to cook and be around with the family. Because, you know... Food is the way that we, you know, we share love and sure, um, sure, what sure. have you. But you're having a break from cooking to probably then end up cooking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, do you still you enjoy know, it? Do you now, manage I don't to really enjoy really it?
3: Look at cooking like oh, it's my job. It's not like I look at it as some kind of arduous, laborous task for me and my family. It's just the, everything kind of centres around food and drink. So cooking Christmas meal at my house is usually pretty simple too. We just have sort of smoked salmon and prawn cocktail and. Some bits and pieces. We don't really do a full-on, like, sit-down dinner, because all my family are chefs. Wow. So they all usually congregate around my house, six, seven o'clock at night when they're all done their, their shifts, and sit down because they're all knackered. We have a couple of drinks, and usually if someone falls asleep early while watching <laughs> Home Alone.
0: <laughs> so how this is working is I'm almost peering behind five little advent windows. So I've got five mystery chefs from around the UK lined up. And each of them, I'm asking if they can give the listeners a sort of chefy tip, something to help us when we're preparing our Christmas dinners. Yeah. Um, have you yeah. got any chefy tips for a key ingredient for a nice Christmas dinner? And you mentioned salmon. Or
3: I think the big thing about any time when you're cooking for like a lot of people is things that are shared work out a lot better than like trying to do lots of plates for everybody. So instead of like trying to make an individual plate for like eight people, why don't you do like a really beautiful platter of smoked salmon and brown bread and put some prawns on there and some cocktail sauce and kind of let people share and sort of dig in at the table and make it a bit more rustic. I think, like, all people try and do those dinner events where they try to tailor everything to every person or they try to make it super impressive on a plate. But it really just needs to be good stuff, plenty of it, and keep the conversation going while you're kind of passing something around. I think that's, like, much more fun. So any time I do anything that, I, like I would tell everybody, Something that you can kind of tray up or something that you can have in a bigger vessel that you can sort of dish out at the table makes it a lot less stressful.
0: And what's it like for you, you know, when on those rare occasions that you can get into Long Clume or you can eat something that your family members cooked? Are you still using your chef brain? Are you still thinking like a chef or are you just able to switch off?
3: When I was younger, I think I used to think like that. that, is to be really chefy and, oh, this, that, and the next thing, about this place and that place. And now I'm too old to be you look at it as competitiveness or anything like that. It's like I go to places like Long Kloon because I want to know what they're doing and be kind of inspired. I mean, I look up to people like Simon Rubin and stuff. It's just people to emulate as them. So if i are going out for a meal like that, then it's definitely because I've already, you know, researched or seen so much of it. and I've built myself up to a time where I really, really want to go to that place and enjoy a meal. And again, it's just our lifestyle. We love food and drinks, so my wife and I, if we can get the chance to go somewhere We went to Andrew Fellows for our 10 year wedding anniversary this year And that was, you know, a really special night to have away And, and have some really good food But, you know, it's more about the occasion And it is the technical aspects of it I can enjoy any type of meal as long as it's good You know, it doesn't have to be two star Michelin I just like going to those places because it's interesting And it's, you know, obviously they're amazing restaurants
0: What about with your own cookery? Your own toughest critic?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely hard on myself I don't need anybody else to criticise me. <laughs> well. I, I, I criticise myself enough because, you know, it's never really been something that's, like, I wouldn't say naturally gifted to me. It's something I've had to work really hard at to get kind of good at. I've worked a lot of kitchens and I wasn't always the shining star of all those kitchens. So, you know, I'm definitely critical because it means a lot to me. You're putting yourself in a vulnerable situation. Yeah. You don't want to be unconfident about the things that you're putting out there. You want people to enjoy it. That's the biggest thing about this business is getting your ego stroked by people enjoying what you're doing. And luckily, I'd say most of the time, people really love what we do. So there's you know there's a lot of hard work going in the background to that and a lot of criticising of myself, the restaurant, where we need to be. There's a constant ebb of this needs to be better. We need to upgrade this. We need to work harder on that. The kitchen, that can never be cleaner. There's never enough hours in the day to do all the work we need to do. So yeah, you have to be hard on yourself or you're going to be
0: I I suppose as well, like I say, once it's your own business, you know, it's like you have to set the standard.
3: Yeah, you're no longer working for a big name chef that's got Michelin stars and stuff behind them. It's like it's easier said than it seems obvious to say. But when you're the guy that has to set the tone for everything, not just the standard of the food. I mean, the standard of the food is one thing of three million that I may have to do in a week. You know, I still have to set the standards of the toilets. I have to set the standards of how we talk to each other. I have to set the standards of how the deliveries come in and how we interact with purveyors. So, like, there's a constant re-looking at everything you're doing and the pressure is, whether it's your own business, that every decision that you make, you kind of live and die by. You raise the prices. You've got to listen to the feedback from people whether it's worth it or not. Or, you know, you've put a dish on the plate. You've got to take the feedback of that or how service was that night. Was everybody looked after well or did someone have an attitude and not have a good time? You live and die by all those decisions, so there's a lot of things to think about, I think. When you're the chef and a business owner at the same time, there's tons.
0: And again when you're doing things like refurbs and what you must be thinking of all the time <laughs> now is what's the future of the restaurant?
3: How do we get better? How do we grow? How do I reward my staff that have been with me for two and a half years, that have worked Eight, eight hours a week in a cramped tiny kitchen with a stove that keeps switching <laughs> off halfway through service and they're looking at me like you really want to produce some of the best food in Scotland and the kitchen's falling apart so it's like yeah the refurb stuff it's stressful but it's sure. so necessary it's either refurb or move you know yeah. those are our only two decisions because we've gotten to a point where Yeah, we can continue what we're doing, and it will be fine, and people will like it, and we'll have another good year. This year's been our best year by far in terms of turnover and whatnot. But again, that's never what really Hazel's been about. It's constantly changing. It's constantly upgrading. It's constantly trying to figure out a better way. You You always want to pay the staff more. You always want to promote within. You always want to keep staff, and you've got to constantly create that atmosphere for people.
0: The other thing about this time of year is it's one of those when I've noticed that today I've been following it on all these awards and you'll get things yeah. like AA and Good Food yeah. Guide comes out and, you know, Michelin stars are only around the corner. What's your relationship with awards and things like that? Is it something you look for? Is it something that if it comes, it comes? Or,
3: In all honesty, every chef that's cooking a certain style of food wants a certain accolade or certain thing. You have to sign up to these things and there's lots of reasons to do or don't do them. I've won three rosettes when I was 26, and it's not something that really I'm that interested in now at 34. There's things that I think, from a marketing perspective, it might help with advertising for jobs and stuff that might get us better staff. But yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely in the opinion of whatever comes to us, comes to us. And it's organic, it's not set up. We're not inviting lots of people in to try the restaurant and give us nice reviews and stuff. You always look at the things when they come out and someone puts it in your face, and maybe you think you want to do better in that particular guide, but... It's something I try not to spend too much time thinking about. I mean, with Twitter and Instagram and everything that comes up, it could drive, start to drive you crazy. The people yeah. that may expect something of you, or even if you expect something of yourself, there's a lot of pressure there to adhere to a certain thing. i am always been an opinion if you kind of work hard and do the right thing, and and provide something, you know, something will come along eventually.
0: It's difficult for me, because obviously, I'm invested in this world, a lot more than even I was before, and I was pretty invested in it before, it's like, Chefs now can be like rock stars, you know, and they can have these like great big followings. I remember when I first moved up to Leeds and Man Behind the Curtain was like just yeah. a good restaurant in Leeds and now Michael O'Hare is one of the, probably the biggest name chefs in the UK. And I always wonder, you know, how comfortable people like yourselves are would be if all of a sudden then, you know, everybody wants a piece of you. You know, you want camera crews coming yeah. around every day. You know,
3: I can't say it, and I don't know the levels of Michael O'Hare's fame how he wants or doesn't want it for me it's not something that I particularly you know I haven't done a lot of PR since we've opened Mm. I've turned down more things than I do it's not something that I'm particularly comfortable going to a demo and doing and if I've done something in the past it's because I've been really convinced by someone to do a demo or something but it's not something I really want I kind of want not a quieter life but just a simpler living I just want to go to my restaurant be a little bit anonymous cook look after people look after my staff everybody have a good time and then go home to my wife and family i don't want to be constantly checking what people think about me on twitter or anything <laughs> like that.
0: well i'll try not to make you too much of an international superstar but, you know. <laughs> i mean if things come your way then things come your way but it's not something
3: that i want you know things tv and all that sort of stuff it's i don't think i'd be any good at it either i don't have to the type of personality I don't think for a lot of the things out there it's
0: not. well you can definitely do more interviews because you've been a fantastic talker today I've really enjoyed <laughs> talking to you <laughs> no you know it's a real pleasure to have people like yourselves so especially sure. when you've been to the restaurant and really like it
2: you know
3: keeping the restaurant full is the name of the game you know, all the accolades you want if your restaurant's not full it's not going to do a lot of things so getting our name out there and the fact that people are travelling up from England
0: or the States or wherever it may be to eat at the restaurant is sometimes super
3: surprising to
0: me. I think it's a sign of what you're doing and i always say it to every chef you know the biggest compliment i can pay is that although eating out is like our passion we don't Mm. eat out lightly i will probably spend like my whole lunch break googling restaurants in an area if i'm going to stay there for a weekend so by the time i've chosen you i've like turned down like five or six other restaurants yeah so that's like the biggest compliment i can pay and then especially if afterwards i end up liking it then obviously like my choice feels justified
2: (laughs) and it's (laughs) always you know if i
3: have a good meal i'll Put something out there on Twitter or Instagram because I think it's somewhat like it's interesting to show where you are. I travel a fair amount, so I think it's kind of cool to show other things, especially friends and family. But also, if I have a good meal, I like to tell other people, and I know how hard chefs work. I'm one of them, so I think small appreciations go a long way with most chefs.
0: It's just important to mention that all the links to your website and your social media are always going to be available through the pass they're people that i really really rate and you're one of those can only thank you for coming on and nice chatting to us and giving your tip for a christmas banquet i think that sounds like a really amazing idea actually i'm thinking yeah. about curing some salmon for this year so nice, nice. i feel like my choice is now justified that you've said doing salmon. <laughs> i'm
3: probably gonna be lazy and ask my fishmonger for
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much cool. cheers much. mate hi it's paul from the past podcast Series 2 is sponsored by Welcome to Leeds, a new city platform showcasing, supporting and celebrating world-class events and organisations and all the various people in Leeds. Just like the people that I'm meeting as a part of our new podcast series available exclusively through the Welcome to Leeds Food Channel. Check it out at www.welcometoleeds.co.uk. Our third guest is Martin Major, head of the Flitch of Bacon in Little Dunmote. He talks about working under Daniel Clifford and his plans for a Christmas goose. You had a busy lunch service? Yeah, not bad. About
5: 20 covers in. We've only got 36 seats, so... Uh,
0: right, OK. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How long have you been there?
5: Seven months now. So, obviously, we refurbished the floor. However, mm-hmm. when we refurbished the floor, we so to take a slightly different direction, do a bit more fine dining in a relaxed atmosphere. So, worked on the menu for about a month six weeks with daniel and then off we went
0: was it a case of that people were kind of like expecting that you would be doing something different to what it was originally or
5: there's a couple of chefs before me things didn't really work out and i'll be honest with the pub games it's very difficult you've got to try and hit the mark and give people value for money but at the same time putting fish and chips on a plate is not a cheap game anymore it's expensive to buy a decent piece of fish and fry it you know it, it costs money I think Daniel just sort of reverses it back to when we decided to collaborate. He sort of decided he'd stick to what he knows. So as you go down the fire, we'll it's still a relaxed atmosphere. I mean, it's still, a, it's still housed in the pub, but it's the food that we all like to do, really.
0: And from what I see as well, it's not like one of those ones where he's just sort of set it up and then buggers off. Like He seems like he is there quite a bit. And
5: Oh, absolutely, yeah. We catch up most evenings. Uh, he at least pops in the kitchen once a week and... I mean, don't get me wrong, it's my baby, but he's always on hand to give me advice and structuring and stuff like that and dishes. So, yeah, very much involved in the overlooking of the place.
0: I speak to a lot of different head chefs. I've had Danny Parker on, who's, like, the head chef for Kenny Atkinson. Mm. I've had Andrew Pern's head chef. And one of the things I always find really interesting is, do you feel like it is your food that you're putting out, or is it...
5: It's 100% my food. I mean, Daniel obviously gives me direction, but at the end of the day, I and the boys and girls in the kitchen are the ones creating the dishes. I'm not one of those ones that dictate what they're going to do. I've obviously got a style of food and, you know, it's only my second head chef's position, so I'm still learning my style of food. But I don't think you ever sort of stop progressing, but it's definitely a, my food on the plate, that's for sure.
0: What's it like then, working underneath one of the greatest head chefs? He must be a fantastic character to work alongside.
5: Oh, yes, definitely. A force of nature. He's a man of many ideas. He's driven, you know, he's achieved so much, and it's very interesting to see what he can give me so we can make the Fletcher Bacon as successful as it needs to be.
0: Tell me a bit about, you know, your background and how you came to take this position.
5: So I've been cooking in London for the last 10 years, and my previous position was at Marleyburn at at L'Otropied for Andy McFadden and David Moore. I stopped there and then took a little bit of a stop gap and this position popped up at the Fletcher Bacon. I used to work with one of his old head chefs called Scott Fricker at Robuchons in West Street years ago when we were chefs of parties and he messaged me and said, Oh Martin, there's a position, are you what are you doing? There's a position at Fletcher Bacon. Would you be interested? And I said, Well, you know, could be good, could be good and <laughs> sort of ball rolling from there it was just a conversation and then popped down to see Daniel, and away we went.
0: So from what I saw when you guys were getting started up, there was a little bit of struggles might be the right word, in that it sounds like it's a very sort of character pub. Was it a big project taken on when you're doing the refurb?
5: I mean, initially, they gutted the pub, and they put an extension on, and then a couple of years later, when we had the floor redone, basically, it's a grade two-listed building. The central heating is underneath the floor, and obviously, you'll be super careful because of the historical act evidence and all that kind of stuff so we just sort of gave it a new lick of paint and a little spruce up and slightly changed the goalposts and the fact that we didn't want it to have a real pubby feel to it sort of more of a relaxed fine dining essence I think they obviously incurred quite a few issues but when I came on the scene
0: I was the (laughs) you came in when it was easy it was really down the line by the time (laughs) I came on one of the things that, again, that's really a trend at the minute, and I saw it, like, called out in the Michelin announcement the other day, in that cooking in UK pubs now is at its highest standard. Why do you think that is?
5: The standards are a lot higher now, you know. We are always struggling as an industry with staff and stuff like that. I did two years with Robuchon, and did a couple of years with Phil Howard. We've all got quite a high pedigree and we know what we want and we're just driving the scene forward the way we see fit. And that has been, you know... Hours and hours of hard work, and now it's just everyone else filtering out, I think. I think the hand and flowers and stuff like that have led the way in the fact that you can have really good food housed in a pub. I mean, you look at so many of these places now, and it's just an outer casing, really, these days. You can make your mark wherever. It doesn't have to be in a grand dining room with white tablecloths anymore. I think that's been a transitionary period over the last 10 years. People know what they want now. People want to eat good food everywhere. They expect a lot more as diners.
0: Well, you have, like, you know, regulars. Absolutely.
5: I mean, it's a slow progression because obviously from going from a pub to more of a fine dining restaurant, you know, the prices are slightly different, the trend's slightly different, but we do have regulars and it's great cooking for those guys. As a chef, I have things that are on the menu, but I also have things that I like to try out on people and say, look, it's a little bit extra here and a little bit extra there because that's what it's all about, really. It's about just putting great produce on the plate and making people happy.
0: It's always going to be one of those things that excites imagination, and again, because of the chef patron that you've got. But one of the other things that you guys do is you get quite a lot of guest chefs down. Is that for you to riff off with them and develop and make your pub menu, or is it...
5: It's just good to do collaborations, really. I mean, I'll be honest, as a chef, we don't really get out that much. I don't know about (laughs) about you, but I don't really go out that much. (laughs) I spend some time with my wife when I'm off. We go out to eat a bit, but really, it's just nice to meet other like-minded people and get together and see what they're doing food-wise I wouldn't say it was ripping off it's just a collaboration of good chefs doing what we love really and I think it's very important for people to connect in that way and it's good for the kitchen as well for the boys and girls to learn that this is not the only style you're going to see because you can become very tunnel visioned in fact oh well this is the style I'm doing and you know there's a whole world out there Mm. you just got to go and see it
0: I talk about styles of cookery quite a lot As the series have developed, the answer I've been getting more and more is, you know, I don't necessarily care about style. What I'm looking at is taste. Is that how you view food as well, or or is it like, no, it has to be within this certain style?
5: I mean, I'll always have Phil Howard's words in the fact that he says to me, is it delicious? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the plate. If it's not delicious, why would you want to eat it? That's got to be the core of your questioning. I mean, style over a substance is something that you do see now and again but not really gonna stay the test of time, is it? Because that's not what people want to eat. So to answer your question, absolutely, first and foremost, it's got to be tasty what people want to eat. Otherwise why are you cooking? We're not cooking for the critics, we're cooking for our customers at the end of the day.
0: What challenges do you feel, you know, that brings for yourself? Is it a case of, you know, you have to now really lead by example and
5: Yes, I suppose this position for me has been a real eye opener because Danny was pushing me forward to be a restaurateur really you know i'm not looking just at the food and the plates it's about why is the light broken on the side of the thing i mean daniel's a very hands-on man He'd get on and do it you know just look at the menu look at how it's laid out why is the pricing point like that and so absolutely there's a world of knowledge to be learnt out there so it's been a steep learning curve for me in that retrospect so definitely a lot to learn still
0: I remember reading that when it was sort of decided that you wanted to pursue this fine dining. And then when you were brought in off the back of that, did you feel a little bit of pressure that, you know, this is the time that we've got to get it right?
5: Any new project, you're going to feel a certain amount of pressure. For me, it was quite an easy transition because Lodge Pied was always fine dining. Mm. And Andy was a great mentor again. He sort of, you know, was yes, a, good, wonderful restaurant. a good friend and chef to me when I was over there. I mean, you feel the pressure, any job, I felt the pressure, but I wouldn't say that it was any more than what I'm used to this is what I was, was born to this is what I want to do, this is the food that I want to do. So, you know, I think it's just a normal amount for me.
0: What would you say the biggest thing that you've learned in your career up until now is?
5: Managing people. You've got to have a finesse for cooking, but um, managing people is unbelievably difficult. And understanding yourself, of course, is always self exploration. understanding what makes you tick and try not to get too upset with things that are different on the plate and, you know, trying to sort of accept that sometimes things are going to be different and trying to understand how other people tick and what sort of excites them. You know, I try and motivate the boys every day and say, like, let's go, let's 40 covers tonight. That's what we've got to do. Mm -hmm. You've got to be at the forefront every day, driving them forward. Otherwise, you say, oh, my God, 40 covers tonight. They're all Mm going to think the same thing. So I would say definitely man management and understanding how people deal with pressure
0: as well this episode is a christmas special so what i've done is i've called around some of the best chefs around the uk the thing that's come up is obviously i look to christmas and i think oh, i can't wait because i've got some time off i can cook a nice roast for my family and this and that and the other you know obviously when you do get your break you're taking a break off of cooking and then the first thing that comes up is christmas dinner do you still manage to enjoy cooking at home and cooking for your family and
5: Oh, absolutely. When we do get time off, I mean, the last couple of years, I've been quite lucky I've had Christmas off. We sort of do it as a family. I think if you break it all down, like last year, for example, I cooked the turkey, you know, my wife, auntie brought round some roast potatoes because we all live in quite a sort of close vicinity of people. We're quite lucky in the fact that you just sort of allocate jobs to people. You know, a lot of little things amounts to
0: a big thing. Will you guys be open over Christmas, or are you shutting down? Or We
5: are, yeah, we are open at Christmas.
0: We're oh, amazing. Christmas Day, Boxing Day. What a place to come for Christmas Day. You can't imagine the Christmas dinner that you guys are going to be putting on.
5: Oh, I hope it's going <laughs> to... It will be flawless. <laughs> oh, f- no pressure.
0: Have you had any thoughts about what that's going to look like right now, or is it still yeah, to be planned?
5: Yeah, we're going to do sort of just a little bit more refined. We're going to do a smaller, tasty menu. be like a starter fish course main course and dessert and we'll do like I'm definitely going to put probably goose on people can have turkey wherever, you don't see everyone cooking goose that often, so I think I'm probably going to put goose on and then desserts wise, not really sure to be honest, we have talked about Christmas pudding there are a few Christmas puddings stashed away in the fridge already, (laughs) but that's yet to be decided
0: If you are planning out your Christmas dinner, what you're going to serve to the guests or if you're planning tonight's tasting menu where's the starting point for, okay this is a new dish that I want to create
5: I start personally with the season. Where are we in the season? We're at autumn. So if you take, for example, like a tasting menu, something like that. So we do canapes to start with, but they sort of, they're interchanging. But our amused food, at the moment, is a little warm butternut soup with salt and vinegar seeds, parsley and a little lemon jam. So you're just thinking about what's it like outside as well? Is it cold? Is it hot? Is root vegetables around? So I definitely base a lot of my cooking around the season and what's in season. That's how I would, start, and then you pull things apart, really. You have artichokes on at the moment, which are great. So I've got a variety of artichokes. I've got Jerusalem artichokes, baby artichokes, to artichokes, bravard, and globe artichokes. We're going to pickle some of them. We're going to conflit some of them, whatever technique you want to use. But you've got to think the artichoke's quite an earthy flavour anyway. So you've got a bit of acidity from the pickle. Artichokes are earthy. What's an earthy flavour? What would complement that? Let's think about like a creamy flavour, like cheese you then lead it down that road so you just sort of brainstorm really I, I always put a single thing in the middle of a piece of paper or something, it all starts with paper and pen <laughs> and then go from there you think okay, what do we need to add some texture to it, do we need to add some richness and you know, I've got some nuts on the artichoke salad as well just to give it a little bit of texture that is just my process, do not the way everyone else does but mm. that's, I'm sure Is it almost that's like sort of, of
0: start from the main element and then sort of build up
5: Exactly, out. yeah, and then just sort of work out from there
0: and it's like to make trying sure to get compliments not too much on, on there
5: either. I mean, this doesn't need to be too many things on the plate. Really, you need to let that produce shine for itself.
0: On those occasions, do you want to keep there an element of tradition? Because obviously, people have come out for a Christmas Day dinner, or are you thinking, well, look, they've come somewhere a little bit different. The goose is a prime example. It's a little bit different, but it's not unfamiliar.
5: I definitely champion it at just trying something a little bit different because otherwise you just cook it at home. The thing that I think is if you're coming out to eat, we want to wow you, we want to, you know, this is amazing. I could do this at home because this is our profession. This is what we've done all our lives. So we want to make you feel special. You know, that this is is delicious and sort of get the old brain thinking, well, how has he done that? We make all our chutneys and jellies and stuff here. I try and make everything pretty much in-house. We do it with a little white wine jelly with one of our goat's cheese. We do uh, pairings. She said, how do you make the white wine jelly? You know, I'm quite happy to disclose that kind of information because knowledge is power. I'm not going to covet my uh, recipes because that's not the way I've learnt and I don't <laughs> believe it's the way anyone else will learn. Seeing as yeah. you've just
0: mentioned about sort of sharing tips, have you got any top chef tips that me and the listeners can just do improve our food and if we're cooking dinner for the family, which I know I'm doing this year?
5: I would say you're going to do a roast dinner so you're going to do your Christmas dinner, and it's turkey. Planning is paramount. We brine most of our birds here, and some of our fish and stuff like that. and That just helps you keep it nice and succulent. So definitely I would advise to brine. It's nothing to be scared of. It's just going to impart a bit of flavor, and you're going to get a much better product from the end result. So if you wanted to make a simple brine, I'd brine a turkey, like a normal-sized turkey, for at least a day. I normally use about 2% if you go in for a day, so six litres of water, 250 grams of salt. Then you can play around a bit. You can have whatever you want in there. I flavour my Christmas brines with Christmas spice, so cinnamon, bouquet garni, which is like bay leaves, and parsley, and peppercorns, cloves, a little bit of star anise, and 200 grams of sugar as well. And basically just mix that all in a pot. You can have orange in there and stuff like that. You squeeze that all in and just submerge your turkey in there leave it to uh, sit in there for a whole day, 24 hours, take it out, wash it off, and then you'll cook it. And what you'll find is the meat that you get is a lot more tender, it's flavored better because the salt and the sugar extract some of the liquid and injects some of the flavor, so it's a, form called, a process called osmosis. And you'll just end up with a better product. And apart from that, just pre-do your roast potatoes, parboil them, shake them in a the and they get nice and fluffy. You can roast them an hour before you're gonna serve dinner take them out of the fat, leave them on the side and then when you're ready to eat 20 minutes before, just pop them back in the oven at 160 degrees. You're not going to notice the difference. I mean, I started my career in pubs years ago now but at sort of 17 years old I was running a pub in a place called Oving in Buckinghamshire called The Black Boy and we used to do about 120 roasts on a Sunday lunch. <laughs> wow. It wasn't all done to order, you know. One well, of my first jobs when I got in in the morning was get a big stock pot, get all your
0: potatoes in, get them cooked and get them roasted because, you know, it's preparation is key. Roast potatoes for me are the star of any exactly roast dinner. It.
5: Goose
0: fat. Oh, God, <laughs> Goose I love fat, it. roast potatoes are
5: yeah. delicious.
0: You've just spoken about that so eloquently there that you enjoy sort of teaching people. Is that something that you really enjoy because it came across there?
5: You know, you have to teach the next generation, otherwise the industry is screwed. I like teaching it. I like to impart knowledge because I think, you know, it's exciting and you can learn something from it at the end of the day as well because they might go, well, why do you do it like that? Because it's an age-old thing of, well, I've done it like this for years. (laughs) And actually, it's not the best way to do something. So someone can come into my kitchen, bright-eyed 18-year-old, and say, I want to cook and show them something. I say, why do you do it like that? He said, well, do you know what? I have no idea. (laughs) <laughs> I have no idea why that. You know, you question everything. So, to that relationship, you have to understand why you're teaching, and then you'll obviously progress yourself as well.
0: I completely agree. I think you're never too high up to learn something. Absolutely.
5: And you're never too old well to start learning. Absolutely. You can always or, teach an old dog new tricks. New. I mean, otherwise, you become stagnant, and that's no good for anyone
0: when you get your time off and downtime, and you sit in there with a pint at the end of the day with daniel or by yourself do you sit there and have ambitions for the pub you know where you would like to take it what you would like to achieve there or is it you just enjoying yourself
5: i think anyone that says you don't want to win the stars you don't want to accolades is lying because you know it obviously brings business through the door i mean i want the place to be busy i want it to be successful but of course, I'd love a star, you know, I mean, I've worked in starred restaurants for most of my life. I think that is obviously an ambition of mine. What it surrounds is a different matter. I mean, what is Michelin stars these days? I think that you get them fair play. If you don't, as long as you know that you're cooking to the best of your ability and you're in an environment that you're happy in, then so be it because you have to be happy in what you're doing and the products you're putting on the plate. It's always a bit of sort of a game of chess of how do you reduce the hours? How do you make things better? for working life but you know at the end of the day if you're happy putting the food on your plate and your customers are happy then really what more can you ask for
0: can you tease us with anything that's going to be coming up if you've got any guest nights or anything to watch out for at the flitch bacon in the new year
5: there's a few things i'm not really sure whether i'm at liberty to say what the next guest chef in january is but he's someone very big he's daniel's friend he's got two stars
0: yeah yeah that, i think that, i can pool, guess yeah that that's all a, i can say because yeah, i don't know whether wow.
5: i'm allowed to so okay so I'll if it there. is who <laughs> i think it is
0: that is going to be out of this world so people need to get onto your website and twitter and absolutely, what
5: absolutely yes we will call our lovely lady in the office and she will organize that
0: give your website and your phone number a shout out so listeners know what to do when that comes and gets announced
5: so just and our phone it was 1371
0: I found you through Twitter, so people can get in touch with you at Twitter as well.
5: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, at Hoving Road, that's my uh, original address where I lived for 20-odd years with mum and dad.
0: Um, <laughs> all the links will be available through the podcast and through my Twitter feed as well. As per normal listeners, you'll all know that by now. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Hi, it's been a pleasure.
0: It's been really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time on our Christmas special. It's been amazing meeting another chef throughout the UK. Your Christmas tips and the way you described it, I think has got all of our mouths salivating. So if people aren't already tucking into their dinner, I'm sure they're making a last couple of alterations. And like I say, all the links to your website and what have you will be attached to the link. And if that guest chef is who I think it is, then that's going to be massive. So I really encourage people to follow you on Twitter and see what's going to happen with you guys. Absolutely.
5: Watch this space.
0: All right. Thank you so much, mate. Pleasure. Cheers. Coming up next, I had a chat with Richie Allen, the head chef of the Orangery in Rockcliffe Hall. I
2: did a collaboration dinner with the guys up at Kinlock Lodge and I went from Jersey to Sky
0: bloody hell
2: (laughs) with the produce in there poly boxes and stuff it was a proper trek
0: when did you get the call to come over to Rockcliffe
2: I got asked by my current GM at the time Eamon Elliott to come over and have a look at a place which obviously turned out to be Rockcliffe and it was three years ago what were your thoughts at the time were you reluctant or you straight in or no not at all it's a beautiful place it's got huge potential there's a lot to do it's just a work in progress when you see something you have to look at it and weigh up whether, you know, it can go anywhere. And like I say, the potentials that they can be and, and what you can do over the place. And the balance swayed me to come over.
0: Well, I think very recently, one of your decisions must have been proven right in a way because I should probably give you massive congratulations on your latest AA results.
2: Cheers, mate. It's awesome. It was a long time coming, really. I don't mean that in a bad way. It was just we were over the moon when we got it. And it's just a amalgamation of a lot of people's hard work. So, yeah, it's fantastic.
0: They're quite long old nights, those things, aren't they? So you must be sitting in a room for quite a while in a tux getting hot and drunk and then all of a sudden somebody says your name. In that moment, is it quite hard to comprehend?
2: Yeah, it is, but I mean, because you sort of know, but you don't know. So you don't really know whether you're actually going to get it. And obviously the four and five rosettes, they're at the end of the evening, like you say. And it was, it was absolutely sweltering. <laughs> and, and we got there in the morning, obviously, because we travelled down from Darlington. So it ends up being a, bit, a long day. But I caught up with friends and it's a great
0: night. So Orangery is one that people will be very familiar with. The is a really big, lovely hotel up in the northeast of England. What's it like working up there?
2: Oh, superb. Obviously, I've come over from Ireland and the produce is what sticks out the most and obviously the friendly people.
0: Is it a bit more pressure working in this big grand hotel environment
2: no not at all because we were very careful to get it just right with moving from from a restaurant to a big hotel i'm actually looking after the orangery which is a restaurant
0: that stands alone amongst two other restaurants so it's actually quite a great fit for me is it all about managing a restaurant identity in a way in the spaces
2: i think it's very important for me to bring my identity to the restaurant whilst trying to keep a happy medium with what we're offering just trying to relay what I'm all about, what I'm trying to do into that space. We've done quite well
0: so far. I mean, the pictures that I see online, it's a, a real great space and it looks like you're doing some quite exciting things with your cookery. What sort of things turn you on when you're presenting out some of your dishes to the guests?
2: Flavour's the most important thing, and we've got some really exciting times coming up because I'm very much about relaying to the guests what we're trying to get across in the kitchen. I don't want it to be, you know, behind closed doors, as it were. You know, a lot of places are. I want people to know what we're doing, so that comes about when when the dish is served. We're uh, very explanatory about what's on the plate and what we're
0: doing. What's the goal for you then, you know, when you're cooking? Obviously, we've spoken about you winning the AA Awards. Are you someone who wants to win things, or are you someone who wants to please people, or is it kind of a bit of a combination?
2: It is a bit of a combination, but I honestly don't cook for awards. I know everyone says that and it's a bit of a cliche, but it's great to have them. Anyone who tells you it's not is lying. you know of course, a star's great or rosettes are great, or any type of award that are out there you know it's fantastic. It's a nice pat on the back for the team. But just cooking, I just absolutely love cooking. you know this trade is absolutely fantastic, and I think we're at a point where there's a bit of a staff shortage, and, and it's quite difficult to get people to come through. so you know I can't say enough how cracking this trade is really.
0: Is it something that you always wanted to do, be a chef, or was it a bit of a...
2: No, not at all. I wanted to be a Royal Marine. I had my heart set on it. I'm from a catering family. My father owned bakeries. My mother worked for Mary Ford. She was a cake decorator. My sister followed in her footsteps. Um, my brother helped in the bakery. There's pictures of me in the bakery when I'm three years old, You know, helping to do all sorts of stuff. I'd end up falling asleep on the flour bags so after about two hours. But um, I just wanted to be a soldier and unfortunately I've got asthma and, and I just didn't realise. So <laughs> for 15 and 8 months I was out on a limb and I fortunately got pushed towards catering and I just loved it. I think it's a discipline.
0: So one of the things that we've been doing is we're collecting chef tips from everybody to improve their cookery over Christmas. I know you've got a cracking recipe for us but before you talk us through, have you got any just basic food tips that will just help us improve our cooking?
2: Make sure you've got an oven for the job. I don't know how many people buy a joint of meat and it doesn't fit in the oven. Make sure you defrost things properly if they're frozen, i.e. big bits of meat, do it overnight. Make sure you uh, cook them for the the right length of time. And slow cook, do everything slowly. It's a much better way of cooking. Slow cook your meat, make sure it's got good seasoning on it and um, give it time. That's it, make time for it and enjoy it.
0: Will you be stoving on the oven this Christmas day or do you get a day off?
2: I'm actually off. My boss has given me the day off. I asked him last year, jokingly, and he popped back with a yes, so (laughs) I I took him up on
0: it. Oh, you lucky bugger.
2: Yeah, well, I'm in Christmas Eve, and then I'm off Christmas Day.
0: What about when you're at home? Do you get time off cooking there? Have you got a wife No, Well,
2: well, I'm actually looking forward to cooking, so... (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it's part of it, you know. Cooking brings everybody together. That's something that, you know, I think we've missed a little bit, so I'm looking forward to cooking and having everyone around.
0: What does a chef's Christmas Day food look like?
2: I've got to be honest. I'm keen on a curry, but this year not I think a turkey korma. We're going to do, calmer, gonna, gonna do a smoked interview. ham and some bubble and squeak. I think me and my wife have sorted out.
0: Oh, lovely! Yeah, and it's like I say, it's quite rare to get a day off. So I bet you'll doubly enjoy that.
2: Oh, definitely! Yeah,
0: I hear you've got a, a mincemeat meat pie recipe. Is that correct?
2: It's mincemeat meat from obviously mince pies, but I let it down with brandy, butter, and honey, and then I spread it onto slices of butter, and then I actually make a bread and butter pudding with it. And I infuse the custard with orange zest and cinnamon, let that stand overnight, and then make the custard out of it the next day, and then bake the pudding. And I serve that with prunes that have been steeped for a long time, last year's prunes, in Armagnac. It's a classic bread and butter pudding, but with minced meat, and got some nice Christmassy flavours in there with orange and booze.
0: When you're thinking about things like that, is that just a way of making that extra step up, that chefy step into good, hearty cooking?
2: I think everything's driven by experience, ideas, things you've done before, and sometimes mistakes, you know. That was just we had me to use up. And I'm a fan of using slightly stale bread, so which just something we gave a go one year. You... I think experience, you know, lets you know when to take the foot off the gas from the dish a little bit and maybe rein it in, or sometimes, you know, put a bit more on and pull out the showstoppers. I think it's just experience.
0: In your experience, how are you thinking about, you know, when a dish is right, when it's perfectly balanced or flavoured or when you're ready to put it on? What sort of checklists are you going for in your head?
2: The ingredient first off. I'm ingredient-led. I would pick an ingredient, whether it be beetroot or wagyu beef or squab pigeon or anything. The ingredient's got to be fantastic and then work around it a lot of the times we do the garnish first. I think it's something that's been forgotten. Just cook, taste, taste, cook. And, you know, a lot of the times it's getting it wrong that makes it right in the end. You know, it's just trial and error, but test and taste again.
0: What about for us, you know, when we're making our Christmas days, is it something that we should be planning in advance? What are the number one jobs, would you say, to get done first and foremost? It it depends
2: what you're eating. But like I say, if, if it's turkey, pick the right bird for your oven. Make sure it's been defrosted if it's frozen. Hopefully it wasn't. Get cracking crack in A nice small of bronze or something like that. Bring it up to room temperature for a couple of hours before you put it in the oven. Your potatoes can be cooked the day before. Your veg can be cooked the day before and roasted off. Any desserts can be done the day before. It's all about prep. At the end of the day, you don't want to be stuck at the stove, do you? You want to be with the people you love. And I think the meal, although it's the centrepiece of any, so organised it's an afterthought I know that's easy for me to say as a chef but <laughs> it's just be prepared get things done the day before.
0: Obviously your style in the restaurant is this really fine dining style do you get on Christmas Eve to have a little bit of a play and do something and elevate a Christmassy style dish or will you be sticking to your fine dining roots?
2: No everything's driven by flavour that could be a sandwich or a duck liver dish whatever but on Christmas day we're at a hotel at the end of the day and And people have got expectations so yeah we do turkey and, and beef everything anyone expects but obviously it's got a little twist and things but i think christmas day is one of the times when you need to stay true to the classics really
0: is that quite fun though it must give you a bit of an additional challenge knowing that almost you've kind of got to work to a brief
2: yeah definitely it's also something you don't do every day like i say you want to pick the best ingredients you've still got your team doing it and you're still all excited about it you still have a brief you break down each dish and, you know, it might be a soup, but it'll you know, have different garnishes and, and you'll have thought about it and you have tasted it and made
0: it. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's something different, it's something we don't do every day. People will have big families coming over. I know we've obviously talked about prep, 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 but in that time when you're preparing for, you know, mass, you know, I know this year we'll have about 12, 15 people around the Christmas table. What are the secrets that you've learned from the kitchen in preparing for a big party?
2: Have enough chairs for everyone to sit on. <laughs> I mean, when we're around my mum's, it's like there's a couple of dwarfs around the table. Someone's sitting on the floor, and someone's sitting on a stool, and you know. So yeah, I can't really say much else apart from it's all about being together. Yeah, you know, that's and true. Just make sure you've got enough. I mean, it's better to have too much than to not have enough. You know, everyone, everyone there. An army marches on its stomach, and so do forty members of family. Just make sure you've got enough. And I know we've, we've talked about prep and stuff and everything. And do a showstopper, you know, get your turkey on and all that sort of stuff. But do something they're not going to expect, you know. There's nothing wrong with a bit of lobster at Christmas if you can
0: afford it. Oh, God, yeah. That would be a quite a lavish Christmas, wouldn't it? <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> it would, it would. <laughs> so, you know, with this army background like you had, do you run your kitchen with military precision or are you quite a relaxed chef or...?
2: I'm very relaxed, but it's all about being organised systems and standards. We do the same thing every day, and what I say to any new chef coming into my kitchen, it's stamina for the rules and the formulas that I've got. You know, I'm very, very clean. I've got terrible obsessive compulsive disorder, which is <laughs> held at bay with lots of cleaning and having things organised. So, in that sense, it is. But I'm not a shouter. I believe in an arm round the shoulder approach and getting people to understand why you're doing things rather than to be shouting them in a bit of a a sharp tongue or giving them a slap and all of those sort of things are a no-no for me so i don't shout i'm very approachable and i like people to ask me questions you know if i don't know the answer i'll certainly go and find out but no
0: it's very organized and very well run i think kitchen could be let's play out this scenario so i'm a new chef i've come into your kitchen it's my first day i'm a starter chef what are the first sort of skills that you're looking for me to really box off and try and you know master and get on top of
2: i want you to be clean i want you to be organized If you're not clean, clean mind, clean chef, clean food. Be organised, see how you work, how you interact with other chefs. Most of all, I'm looking for a good attitude. You can teach anything. I've had so many people come into the kitchen over the years. I've been a chef 26 years. I've seen a lot of different people come into kitchens and their attitudes and things. Let them down. I want a team player. Whether you're willing to help others out, that's important for me. Who you are more as a person than the skills you've got, because we can teach you those.
0: Even with all your experience, you know, is there still like a pressure at service time? You know, when you've got however many demanding guests, and especially nowadays when you've got different diets that you probably have to balance, and this table's a vegan, and that table's gluten-free, and... Is there still that yeah. lot like pressure?
2: Every service, every service, I'm still nervous. I think, you know, not in a bad way. You know, I'm <laughs> excited and you know, I, I want everything to go right and want all the guys to be on their A game. I don't think there's many chefs out there that don't get excited before service and slightly nervous.
0: Is there a little bit of a pressure because I feel like you guys are a real, like a bit of a destination restaurant. You know, it's not like you're in the a- town centre or whatever you've obviously got people that are coming from however far to sample your food is that another part of your night as well as proving a good find for these people
2: yeah i think that's just it goes back to you trialing and testing your dishes and being confident with what you're doing and getting your personality out into the restaurant and then getting them to understand what you're trying to do obviously we've got people coming from cheshire we've had people come over from jersey obviously to see what i'm doing and As far as Weymouth, Cornwall, we get people coming from all over the place. They get the option to come into the kitchen at the end and have a chat with us. So we see most people and they all seem pretty happy. But it's it's quite a lot of pressure on anyone, I think, to get things right. And I don't think it's about how far they're travelling. I think everyone's got an expectation.
0: If, like me, you know, you're one of these people that wants to combine flavours and make a real hearty, flavoursome meal again if you're thinking about a christmas dinner i'm cooking it this year you know you want to push out flavor and you want to sort of try flavor combinations is the best thing just to practice and practice and practice on yourself or when does it almost become too over do you eventually just sort of have to serve it and trust your
2: instincts well, i never test it on your guests that's <laughs> not a good thing and i hate you're not going to test it on your uh, 14 family members <laughs> i think you have to yeah do something to you're happy with when it tastes good serve it
0: What sort of flavours are you looking for in a really good dish? What sort of elements are you looking for?
2: The main ingredient to shine, then things to lift it. I like acidity with dishes, something that's going to clean your palate and whether things balance, whether the vegetables are seasonal, whether they've been chosen at the optimum time and how they've been
0: cooked. Yeah, it's important. It's a little bit easier for you guys as chefs to know exactly what's in season because you've got your suppliers and you're working with them. How can I know that's banging season right now? What's the best things to do? I
2: hate to say it, but Google, get on the CBC website, (laughs) seasonality charts or anything like that. I know it sounds strange, but there's only a few things that you need to look at. and And it's like anything once you know what's in season and it doesn't change. We have four seasons a year and the same things are in season all the time so it's just about a bit of experience and just research just read things buy books there's plenty of literature out there now that can tell you what's in season and farmers markets things like that you know but if there's local farmers market if they're growing it they'll have it they'll be selling it and it's going to be bang in season
0: i suppose as well it's a little bit like Almost how you feel. So if you're looking for something really hearty because it's cold out, a light summer salad isn't going to do that. But if it's boiling hot outside, the last thing you want is, I don't know, a great big slab of pumpkin or something like that.
2: Yeah, true. It's about the old thing. It's how you feel at the time, you know. Comfort food's comforting for a reason. It's hearty. It's big. It's bold flavours. It's normally braised. It's you know slow cooked, big carbs. If you're not feeling that you're hungry, or you. are having a bit of fitness
0: free and it's summer then you're going to eat something lighter it's just horses for courses really i wondered if you'd come up with a little formula in your head for pleasing people with a dish
2: straight away make sure it tastes good it has to look good tastes good and just be appealing if people choose it you want to hit the brief if it's what it says on the menu then that's what it should say on the
0: plate well i think that's a really good note to end it on thank you so much oh, for your you. chefy tips thank you so much for your time thank you and last up, but by no means least, it's the head chef of the Tudor Room, the one Michelin star restaurant in Egham, Surrey, why it's only Douglas Baelish, and he's got a festive cocktail for us all. Cheers. Thank you so much for joining me, mate. Yeah, good one. Obviously, over the last few years, Surrey is a few Michelin stars, and you guys were one of the first, if I think you were the first. How does it feel now in terms of competition? Is that making you up your game? Yeah I mean
4: we had a few before obviously Steve Drake had his and then Michael Wignall had two stars at Penny Hill but obviously they all moved on and closed down so last year we were actually when we gained our star we are actually the only ones in the county this year there's another couple so yeah it's great I mean it hasn't really affected our business so far last week but well we'll see what happens over Christmas time
0: is it kind of really difficult to even put into words now last year you know when you won the star because that was the first year that they'd done it in that big room is it really difficult to put that into words like what that is like when they call your name
4: last year was crazy obviously we knew we had the inspections and we were kind of we are obviously we weren't necessarily going out to get a star but it was in the back of our heads it would been really great to have one and um, obviously the event and everything when we got phoned up on Thursday before the event. We didn't actually know if we'd won something or if it was just to attend or see when they actually called our name. That was overwhelming, almost like a sense of relief almost more than anything.
0: Obviously like you say, you'd had the inspection, so you weren't clueless, but did it come as a surprise or did you feel like no you know, it has been building up to this?
4: Well I mean obviously the pace I've been working over my career was geared up towards that moment. But I think when we actually got the phone call the week before that's when it really became a possibility. I thought, wow, we actually end with a shout here of actually getting a star? I thought, surely they would invite us if they weren't going to award us something. But you never know. So you trying to have the big gourmands and stuff like that. You never know what it is they're actually going to give you.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I guess as well, there's all sort of service awards and all things like that. If you get invited, you must be thinking in your head, well, I'm going to win because I'm not got a star at the minute and now I've been invited to the Michelin event. But like you say, you don't know.
4: Well, as I think from obviously the pattern from this year and then last year, um, I think it's safe to say that it probably is the case they won't invite you unless you're actually going to win something, as it seems to be in the both years. But obviously last year was the first year. Nobody was really sure how it was going to work. Yeah, it was just massive sense of relief and joy, pride, everything. It was just an amazing day.
0: Before the Tudor Room, what was your background where had you been before was it mainly the sort of Michelin style that you were used to doing
4: yeah pretty much I started off in Scotland and then worked in the sort of best places around the local area and after that I just thought I'm going to find the best restaurant I can I'm going to try and get in there so it was kind of one star in Jersey called Bohemia ended up working there for four and a half years so I was up to chef and then left there and went off to basically Watley Manor I had two Michelin stars so did two years there after that just wanted to try and travel a little bit so one restaurant in Australia called Key that I was always really keen to go and work at go and see what they were doing so yeah I went off there for, for one year
0: six months in Key, and then six months in another place so yeah it was great. And when you're choosing places to go and work are you almost saying right I need to learn this sort of skill so I need to go to this type of restaurant or is it just you want to be around the best and challenge yourself
4: yeah I mean certainly for me in the last two or three places I worked when I went to Scotland I just wanted to go somewhere where I really thought the food was like the best of the best so I did a bit of research on where was up and coming where it was good looking at the sort of top guides for the top 50 sort of thing in the UK trying to get into some places but after there, I just, you know, I wanted to learn more about sauces and stuff. So I had to start having a look at the sort of two stars that were particularly good at that. So then, obviously, Watley's absolutely amazing for that sort of thing. So, and after there, I just thought, you know, I want to try and see what it's like working in one of the top restaurants in the world, like one of the best known, So I was on the San Pellegrino list, and see what they're doing, try some this very Asian influence as well, so try and get a little bit of that under my belt. Yeah, and that was it, really. After that, they phoned me up here and said, we've got a little restaurant opening up, if you fancy it.
0: So, yeah, and that was that. So, with all you've learned and the different restaurants there, then, how has all of that sort of impacted the style of food that you're cooking now?
4: Funny question, actually. When I first came here, the food I had in mind for the place and what I wanted to do is completely different from what we're doing now. So, obviously, you take influences from where you've been working before, and that was my first head chef job. So, you don't really have... The experience and the skills that you develop after it just takes time. So, I've been here three years now. Now, we've completely got our own style. It's a mix of everything. Also, trying to keep in, into the sort of theme of the building. It's a Tudor building, very classic looking restaurant, very classic plates. So, actually, the style was kind of changed to adapt to that. And I was almost become my own style from
0: that as well. Yeah, you've almost sort of beat my next question. I was going to ask you when you're in that sort of big, grand space that must sort of play a part into what you're thinking.
4: Yeah, massively. I mean, some of the chefs and the sort of modern cuisine you see like lots of powders and stuff like that and sort of splatters of purees on the plates and stuff like that. It just would not work here. It just would look completely out of place. It's kind of gone from that modern sort of tone it back a little bit to doing classic dishes with a sort of a lightness to it and a sort of like more modern feel to it, but still sticking to things that people can still
0: relate to what would be like a sort of signature dish if you like then that a dish that you're serving at the minute that you feel really sort of epitomizes where you are and the space that you're in
4: we've got a few now. You know i never actually intended them to be signature dishes but seem to have kind of become that we can't even take them off the menu you know sort of thing probably my favorite dish is a squad pigeon some nice french pigeons absolutely amazing product so we make a walnut puree yeah pickled walnuts Cherries, so we've just gone out of season now, so we to have to change. And then we sort of debone the legs and fill it with a prune and black pudding. Yeah, just on the plate, we try and make it look a lot cleaner and a lot lighter than you would normally assume. Like a pigeon dish is going to be.
0: And is that seasonality then behind the heart of the dishes that you're doing? So, like you say, if cherries go out of season, does the dish drop or does the dish have to evolve?
4: Most of the dishes, to be honest with you, is, I wouldn't say were really like ultra seasonal. You know, use just the local produce, or still use stuff from coming in from France if it's a better quality. We use it from France. It does affect us things like the fish and stuff like that. For using broad beans and whatever, once broad beans come out of season, that's it. They start deteriorating. We just get them off the menu and swap over for something else. Now we've got nice turnips and stuff coming through from our own garden, so it's time to use them up. Some of the dishes you can adjust slightly. For example, the pigeon dish, the cherries, right well, now that they're off, they're just going to swap over for pomegranate sort of thing. So it's quite an easy swap. But some of the dishes aren't quite that easy. You just have to change the whole thing.
0: One of the things that I can imagine that may happen and maybe you can give us insight into this being in like your first year of retaining the star is do you almost have to stop from second-guessing yourself a little bit because you might get into that stage of where you're focusing on retaining so it's like, oh, well, this is the sort of style of food that won it so we'll stick to our guns. Do you have to almost sort of stop yourself from doing things like that?
4: No, to be honest with you, the first couple of weeks after we got the star last year I'll be completely honest, that was an absolute monster. Nothing was good enough. We're a one-star restaurant now, and every single thing we did, just, that's not good enough, that's not a star, that's not star-worthy. But you know what, after a couple of weeks, we kind of calmed down a little bit and said, you know what, we were good enough before to get the star, let's just do what we're doing, as long as we we're happy with it and the customers are happy with it. That is really like the main thing for us. So in terms of changing the menu and stuff like that, it's probably got more simple than it was before. So we just kind of now we're more confident and we know what level we're doing.
0: So, as long as we're improving what we're actually sending out, we know we're not going to lose the star at the end of the day. What are you looking for then when you say improvement? Is it just sort of cleaner flavours or bolder flavours? Or what would you say is improvement for yourself?
4: Some of the dishes, I think we just can't look at all the dishes when it comes. We go to take a dish off, say, when something comes out of season, I don't know, say strawberries or something the English ones start going then we start to play with other ingredients and say you know is this better than what we previously had because if it's not then there's no point in putting it on So we're always trying to like improve and progress on what we're doing it can be anything it can be just maybe one particular component something mind-blowing or the blackberries are absolutely outstanding so it's just something that alone you don't have to do much to just send out something amazing yeah I mean it could be anything obviously summer we try more for cleaner flavours, a bit lighter. And then winter, we try and like
0: get a bit more punchy flavours, sort of thing. more fruits, more red wine. Then go down to time of year, I suppose. Is that where you start with a dish then? You see what ingredients are really good at that time, and then you say, right, let's show off this really good ingredient.
4: Yeah, to be honest, I'd probably say that is probably where it starts. Not necessarily from meat and fish sort of side of things, but we started looking at the sort of like fruits and berries or... Vegetables or whatever, and obviously when you get into spring, you've got amazing rolls, drums, sort of asparagus, whatever. It kind of the menu almost picks itself. It's almost like the things that are in season at that time go together naturally. It's kind of kind of funny one.
0: And what about then? You know, the sort of really key essential skills that you need to make the dishes that you're making. What are the sort of fundamentals?
4: To be honest, once you've been doing this for a few years, it's hard to even say. The skills you've got are just kind of rare in the background. You don't even really notice that you have that anymore. I think it's more just taste, practice, you know, and it's just effort and time that you put into the as much as anything. So, hey, we were doing one last week, and tasting it on the carpet, and actually did a sort of red wine fish sauce with it. Words, it was good, but it, wasn't. it didn't blow your mind, and we just changed one or two little parts of it. And it made all the difference, completely changed the whole dish. And that's really just going to experience of tasting what a dish is either missing or if you've added something that it doesn't need. It's going to out really it's much of anything.
0: And so obviously this is like for our Christmas special. So being a chef over Christmas can be a bit full on, especially in some places that will be open Christmas Day and this and that. But on your time off, do you... Uh, opt to cook the Christmas Day dinner or do you uh, shy away? Do you let somebody else in the background cook it? Uh, no, for
4: 12, 15 years, something like that, I've only had one cook uh, on Christmas Day. So knowing that, I did cook Apart from that, I'm usually working. I don't know time off to be had for sister that time of year it's just full on. You're probably working too solid. just lucky to get some sleep in as much as anything.
0: So will you guys be open this year then? Uh yeah, not actually
4: the restaurant itself, but we the whole hotel comes together to do one lunch, one menu sort of thing. I'll we'll still be here, even though it won't be my own restaurant food that we're doing.
0: So what will the sort of food be then that you'll be doing? Is it a bit of a take on your style, or do you just drop the style and get in and do a proper traditional Christmas dinner?
4: Yeah, it's not really my food for that. It's more just helping out the guys sort of things Just everyone gets on board, just traditional sort of turkey and sprouts and all that sort of business.
0: What I asked you to do before the call is to think of a recipe, something that we can do over Christmas that's a little bit more chefified and just something that's a little bit beyond your average. Have you got a recipe for myself and the listeners? Yeah, yeah,
4: I've got a good one. It's pretty much what got me through Christmas Day last year, to be honest with you a nice egg milk recipe. good uh, of ingredients first for what I made the last year. Anyway, so one liter of whole milk, 250 grams of double cream, five cinnamon sticks, three vanilla pods, uh, 10 grams of fresh nutmeg on the microplane, eight eggs, separate them from yolk to white, 250 grams of sugar, and 375 grams of tequila jerry rum. Everyone's got their own preference for egg milk between rum or bourbon or whiskey or whatever, but last year I was just playing around with it, so it had some nice spice, and obviously we see it, so Jerry's got a sort of spice too, it's sort of a natural thing to go with it. So the technique for it, I'd probably recommend using pasteurized eggs to start, So that yeah, like safer, gives you a bit of a longer shelf life on it as well if you want to make an advance. So take your egg, your shooter, whisk that together to make a sort, of, a sort of ribbon sort of stage so it starts to hold itself. On the sides, get your milk, your cream, your vanilla, scoop the little pods so all the seeds go into it as well. The nutmeg and the cinnamon sticks. Bring that up to the boil, just leave it to steep a little bit. Once it's cooled down, then pour that into your egg mix and whisk it through and then pour it back into the pan. Just cook that very well. Once that's cooked out, then you can just chill that down and then add your rum into that as well and when you're actually going to serve it just add that to extra special sort of look to it get your egg whites that you've separated from the yolk and whisk them up so you've got stiff peaks and then fold that through your actual mix when you pour it into glass it'll look all snowy and frothy and it'll taste amazing yeah then you can finish it off with a little bit of uh, grated nutmeg on top absolutely amazing if you're like me then just add a bit more alcohol into it just for good measure. that was my Christmas day night <laughs>
0: So, I mean, do you not get very many chances then to sort of cook for yourself? Is it always cooking in the restaurant and cooking for guests?
4: Yeah, I mean, I've taken it all myself. But just, pretty much, I'm never at home, to be honest with you. I'm always out and about, so I'm either at work or I'm off
0: somewhere, doing do something or see something. Yeah, to be honest, I'm quite partial-skilled Japanese taker and bit the sushi in as well. So what drives you on to do that then? Is it just a drive to keep the success of the restaurant or is it a drive to improve yourself or are you just a workaholic? That's kind
4: of thing of oh, that. I think a lot of it as well is just like a fear of failing. I think. You just don't want to do the best you can
0: and
4: you know, I can't even really describe it. Sometimes I sit there and I think what the hell is this about? What am I doing to myself but...
0: <laughs> I am as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> have Christmas Day Sorry. off, man. Well, <laughs> yeah, there's many times I've
4: sat in the car after a sort of 14, 15, 16 hour a day, just sat in the car outside my house just thinking, what the hell? Just at the end of the day, when you go and see the customers at the restaurant and they want to speak to the chef and you see how happy people are. You know, you really made their night and you can see it a special occasion or whatever and they're just, they had a great time. I think you can see the smiles and everything, you can see the appreciation, you just think, wow, you know, that is why I'm doing
0: this job. I guess for you that must be sort of the ultimate satisfying bit really because it is a lot of work and then every time you see empty plates coming back and getting that feedback.
4: We've been so lucky here. Yeah. The customers we've had have just been absolutely amazing. Um, we've been really hard. You're obviously an odd person. You're never going to please everyone. But i got to say in the three years I've been here, I think it's not even a handful. People have been difficult and... Just been, it's just been great, really positive, and that is, that is what makes it worthwhile. And I think that's a good thing about being a head chef as well, is you can actually see that, whereas when you're sort of lower down the ranks, you don't really understand what it is that people are experiencing, I think. Then you can actually go and speak to guests, and you can see the appreciation, how happy they are, and I think that just makes
0: it all worthwhile. Who's your toughest critic? So that would myself.
4: Yeah. Prefer <laughs> to doubt, doubt nothing's. I was setting and I was thinking of how to improve it or what can we get there. Well, I imagine Direx is so probably up there as well to do Direx, eh, ticket or something.
0: So, speaking of improvement, the uh, thing that I always ask now to wrap up these interviews is to get your ultimate chef hack, just a top tip, or just something that myself and the listeners can do just to improve our cookery. And it's really interesting to get the sort of array of different answers that we get as we go around the different chefs. So, I'd be very interested to get yours. Yeah, I had a
4: little think about this actually. So, we're talking about some of the and little things that we do, and something that's probably Personally, find when I, I go to friends' house, family, and, and they cook me fish, it's never done the same standards you find in the restaurant. So, I would say just a little tip, nothing special, but if you get a little skewer and you cook me the your fish, just put your skewer into it. And You probably have to try it with a couple of raw fish, try it when the fish is cooking, and then try it when the fish, cooking, the fish is fully cooked. So, you can actually feel the difference. And after you've done it a few times, you can get a feel for what's what. But, you know, if your fish is like just starting to be fully cooked, you get a skewer and you can feel it. Six, and when it sticks in the fish, we do cook in a of salmon. When the skewer actually goes all the way through cleanly, you know that a piece of fish is cooked. You can have to take it out when it's a little bit undercooked. You leave it for a minute or two to rest. And you can feel when the skewer goes through that it of the crate. You know it can go on the plate. And you know it's going to be nice, juicy, amazing, flaky inside. I thought that was an easy little tip, but it was actually really effective. We even used it here, to be honest
0: that's brilliant i'm going to try that out
4: it's a good one even for chefs that's a good one just a lot of people don't realize but nice way to do it make sure your fish is cooked properly
0: and thank you so much for sharing your amazing sounding eggnog recipe and for your top tip it's been really fascinating listen to your insight your work rate by the sound of it is phenomenal but i do encourage you to get some time off when you can
4: (laughs) (laughs) that's january that's fine
0: as this christmas special is going out everybody can think of you hard at graft but then also know that in january you're going to get some time off
4: yeah that's right gonna beat summer
0: for this episode of the past podcast that's it i just wanted to wish all our listeners a happy christmas i hope you've enjoyed this episode thank you so much to all my guests and yourself douglas for joining me it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and thank you so much and we'll see you in the new year Thank you for listening to The Past Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe and follow me at Paul Newb on Twitter for updates on the next podcast. If you can, I'd really appreciate a nice review. Just leave a few words and it helps other people find us. The Past Podcast is edited and mixed by Adam Linder from Bespoken Podcasting. Craig Fields from Ambient Light provides technical support. With thanks to Ruby Chow for booking support.